God is good all the time. And it's good to sing of his goodness. It's good to see some more people I haven't seen in a while and some that I have yet to meet for the first time. It's exciting uh, to see our numbers growing on Sunday mornings. Um, It's good for us to gather and it's good for us to gather online. I want to say Welcome to those who are in the room and those who are online. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. Today we're continuing to look at the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote this, his first letter, to the church in Corinth to call the Christians there back to unity. And his words can still help us today to learn how to better love others, to live at peace with them, to overcome division and to break down barriers, to be one body, one body, the body of Christ in a broken and divided world. And we need extra help in this regard now in this season because we've been separated by COVID for two years, closing in on two years anyway. So this book is an opportunity for us to try to figure out, to discern how God is calling us back together as Courtright Church. What what is new? What has he done that's new? And what will he do in this season of reunion that we trust is here and coming even more? And then as he sends us out, what is the new vision he's giving us? Last week, we situated ourselves in the city where Paul sent this letter. And then we looked at its first nine verses and we saw how he reminded the church in Corinth of their extraordinary calling to be in Christ, to be loved by him and made holy and given a new purpose and rooted most of all in his grace. It was a lot of good news and lots of Jesus. Nine times in those nine verses, Paul names Jesus. That is so clearly his focus from the outset. But now we're going to start to get into the hard stuff the division. After Paul left Corinth, he started hearing reports that the new church he'd planted there wasn't doing so well in at least five ways. First of all, there were divisions among them. They had split up into competing factions. And we'll start to see that today and in chapters one to four. Secondly, they were majorly confused about sex and romantic relationships. So Paul talks a lot in this letter about sex, marriage, singleness, and divorce. He does that especially in chapters 5 to 7. Third, there was a ton of disagreement about how to live rightly as Christians in the city and where to draw the line on various issues. Specifically, whether it was okay to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols in the temples in Corinth. Now that particular issue is not too relevant for us today, but in chapters 9 to 10 of this letter, Paul gives us guidelines to figure out the other many cultural questions we face ourselves, like how to approach politics, whether we should drink alcohol or smoke pot. Don't hold your breath for a sermon on dedicated to that, though. (laughs) What job we should have or how we should spend our retirement. How do we deal with the affordable housing crisis in Canada? All these things some more private and personal, some very much in the public square. Paul is going to give us guidelines to discern. Fourth, the Corinthian Christians had the wrong idea about worship. 
Their church services were a chaotic mess with people fighting over spiritual gifts, interrupting each other, not waiting for each other. So Paul focuses on the role of the Spirit in the church, the body of Christ, as he calls it for the first time in the Bible in the 12th chapter of this book. And he focuses on the gifts and the Spirit and worship in chapters 11 to 14. And finally, at the climax of this letter in chapter 15, it seems that some people were downplaying the resurrection of Jesus. They were saying that what really mattered was his life, his example, his teaching. So Paul explains in that chapter why the resurrection, an actual physical bodily resurrection, is so central to Christian faith, so non-negotiable. So that's where we're headed over the next few months. Let's pray before we open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians today. Holy Spirit, would you come among us and would you reveal the truth about Jesus, his truth and his grace? I pray that my message and my preaching would not be with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of your power so that our faith here at Courtright might not rest on human wisdom, but on your power, seen clearest in Christ crucified. Amen. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 10, through to the second chapter, verse 5. Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And here Paul starts to get sarcastic. He asks, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He's talking about himself. Were you baptized in my name, in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. And here you get a sense he's probably dictating this letter to a scribe, possibly Sosthenes, referred to in the first verse of the letter. And it's like Sosthenes just reminded him of that guy. And then he says to Sosthenes, oh, beyond that, I don't really remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, and here Paul quotes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since 
In the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I think every generation has a special year. If you're in your teens, your 20s, maybe it was last year. 2020 and the arrival of a global pandemic like none of us alive have seen. If you're an early millennial in your 30s or 40s, maybe it was 9-11, the war on terror after 2001. For me and many of us in Gen X, 1989 was special. I was in my second year at U of T and the world was changing so quickly in dramatic ways. Communism was collapsing in Eastern Europe. The Tiananmen Square democracy movement was happening in China. Apartheid was coming to an end in South Africa. Most of all that year, I remember hearing amazing speeches. Václav Havel, the president of a post-communist Czechoslovakia, spoke at Convocation Hall. Wuor Kai Shi, a student leader of the Tiananmen uprising in China, spoke on campus also. And then, most of all, Nelson Mandela spoke at Queen's Park. I still remember like tens of thousands of people all the way down University Avenue. And I'll never forget Mandela's speech. There was such tremendous power in his words. He united that huge crowd. We believed in him. We were ready to follow him. And that year, I felt the power of words, the way that speech can change the world like I'd never felt it before. The church in Corinth understood the power of speech also. Last week, I described how the strategic location of that city gave it influence. People came from all over the world to get rich in Corinth. And the multicultural population of the city 
showed up in an amazing religious diversity. There was a temple for every kind of spirituality in the Roman Empire and well beyond. Every god under the sun was worshipped in Corinth. What about us? Well, I think we're more likely to worship rock stars, movie stars, sports stars. Even if you're not a Toronto Maple Leafs fan, even if you're not even a hockey fan, you may know the name Austin Matthews. And if Austin Matthews came to Guelph to sign autographs at Stone Road Mall, it's pretty safe to assume that a crowd would show up. Maybe even some of you Habs fans would show up because I know you're sad these days. <laughs> yes, Justin, I heard that laugh. I'm not going to gloat about the Leafs' 29-10 and 10 record because it says in this passage we should only boast in the Lord. But it does also say that God chose the foolish things of the world. And as, as some of you like to remind me, expecting the Leafs to win in the playoffs. Well, enough said. Wherever you look for your heroes, I'm guessing... It's pretty hard to imagine Guelph buzzing with excitement at the prospect of philosophers or scholars arriving in town to speak in front of City Hall. And yet that's exactly what was happening all the time in Corinth. In the ancient world, philosophers would travel from city to city. Rome, Corinth, Athens were at the top of their lists. They would give public speeches and try to make disciples. 500 years before this letter was written, the Greek philosopher Plato recorded his teacher, Socrates, saying that the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, Corinth took that to heart. The word philosophy literally means the love of wisdom. But there was not much love in evidence as the various schools of philosophy and their followers battled it out in Greece. Fistfights would often break out in the forum of Corinth after public lectures. You know, maybe that's what philosophy needs today. A new image. Plato, the wrestling superstar of ancient Greece. Some of you wrestlers, wrestling fans know what that is. That's a flying epistemological move. <laughs> we can talk wrestling afterwards, maybe. Well, it turns out the, the Christians in Corinth were fighting as well. In verse 10, Paul explains why he's writing this letter. It's actually his thesis statement. He says he's writing it so that all of the Corinthian believers may agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among them and that they may be perfectly united in mind and thought. We sometimes make the mistake of assuming the early church had it all together. I've heard people say, you know, we need to go back to, to the first century church, to the New Testament church. And we do catch glimpses of that in Acts, but they are fleeting. The Holy Spirit was definitely on the move, but the New Testament will not let us forget the problems which always arise from our self-centered, sinful nature. Then, as now, the church was a divided mess. As we saw last week, a holy mess, but still divided, facing all kinds of problems. In Corinth, one group said, we follow Paul. Another, we follow Cephas. Still another, we follow Apollos. Cephas was another name for Peter. And these three, Paul, Peter, and Apollos, were all key leaders in the church. They were good men, and they were gifted teachers. 
but factions had formed around their teaching. There was, one, there was even one really self-righteous group in Corinth that liked to play the ultimate trump card and say, well, we follow Christ. Can you top that? The Greek word for division here literally means tear or rip. So this factionalism in Corinth and the division we see today in the wider church and in denominations of all kinds between them, as well as within individual congregations, these divisions rip apart, tear apart what God intended to be one beautiful fabric. And we should be clear that Paul is not arguing for uniformity in the church here. The New Testament church is a church where Jesus is so large that it makes disagreement on secondary things less important. So there was unity in Jesus, but diversity elsewhere. The problem was not and is not that different traditions within Christianity emphasize different things. I believe that Roman Catholics, Protestants, and Orthodox Christians, the three main branches in Christian history and still today, are all part of the true church of Jesus Christ. They all believe, as we will say later this morning when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. One of the things I love most about Courtright is that we are a church of people from an amazing diversity of backgrounds. Right now on session, our Council of Elders, in a group of 11, we come from Baptist, Pentecostal, Mennonite, United Church backgrounds, no church background, and there's even a Presbyterian or two. Do we agree with each other on everything? No. Are we perfectly united in mind and thought? Yes. But only by God's grace. Only as we focus on the gospel, the basic Christian message, and as the Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ. And if you're interested in what we consider that basic message to be, I invite you to join me on Saturday, February 26th, from 2 to 4 p.m. We'll be in person and online hybrid for Courtright Connect. And at that time, we can, we can talk about what it means to be the church. What, what does Courtright hold to be the basic Christian message? Where have we come from? What's our vision for what God's calling us to? The real division problem in the church in Corinth and in the church today is that Christians lose sight of Jesus and start to sink into their quarrels, into their fighting, and we're torn apart by our pride, by the factions we belong to and the leaders and theologies we hold to. Have you ever felt superior to someone else based on your correct belief or the way you worship or the way you practice your faith. Sometimes that's not even a conscious sense of superiority. It just creeps in there. For some, it's success in ministry. It's outreach. It's growth in numbers. And so they want to be a part of a church known for that. For others, it's freedom in worship. It's the experience of worship and a focus on the Holy Spirit that makes them feel spiritual. And that's the church they're looking for. Or maybe it's a passion for service in the community, social justice, and so that's the most important thing someone might want in a church. For others, it's correct doctrine and Bible knowledge that makes them feel a little better than others. So they take pride in being a part of a church that excels at that. Or 
Factions can formed around, around these various themes in a single congregation. These are all good things, and a gospel-loving church pursues all of them. And there's nothing wrong with being drawn to one of them as a focus. It might be where your gifting lies. What's wrong is when these preferences come along with a sense of self-righteousness and a spirit of division. Paul wants us to stop putting our personal agendas ahead of Christ. And he gets upset here. Is Christ divided, he asked. You can almost hear him shouting through the page, no, no, of course, Christ cannot be divided. And so neither should the body of Christ, the church, be divided. Was Paul crucified for you, he asks. At the cross, at the moment when Jesus died so that we could truly live, All of our divisions, our resentment, the sometimes bitter disagreements we're prone to, all of these are revealed as the garbage they truly are. And that's why Paul gets angry here, sarcastic. But Paul, at the same time, isn't pretending that our differences don't matter or that we should settle for the lowest common denominator. True unity cannot be based on relativism. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. We've all heard that countless times. If the gospel is true, and this is profoundly countercultural, if the gospel is true, it's true for everyone. And Paul wants us to strive for that truth. In verse 23, he sums it all up. He says, We preach Christ crucified. Earlier, he wrote that Christ sent him to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But still, the Corinthians loved eloquence and words of human wisdom. And we're not all that different. In church, we demand sermons that challenge us, inspire us, that are funny and culturally relevant. We want to be fed, always this word, fed. We want to be entertained. Through this pandemic, churches with the resources to do it have searched for ever more compelling online content. And people have multiple tabs open looking for that Sunday morning worship experience that will really renew them, revive them, thrill them, jumping around. But Paul is clear. He says that the gospel is Christ crucified. That should be our one focus. And the basic Christian message cannot be built on words of human wisdom. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. Does that enter into our church shopping ever? Are you prepared to listen to what God is saying to us through a really crummy sermon? Or are we most interested in criticizing on the way home and then forgetting about it? Do we believe that God could show up in the failures and brokenness of our congregation? Or are we desperate to move past them? Are we willing to look for the presence of God in the team or committee or small group we're a part of that's struggling? Or is our first instinct to leave it, to get out of there? And in our whole lives, can we sit with our disappointment and even our despair? 
without assuming that it means the absence of God. Paul says that God is in these things most of all. He says that Jesus is first and foremost the crucified God. And so Christians believe that Jesus of Nazareth, this spiritual leader who failed so dramatically, shows us the way to eternal life. At his worst and lowest point on the cross, he revealed to us God's truth and wisdom. The cross of Christ invites us to change our minds. It demands a conversion. It overturns our assumptions about success, and it leads us into the love of those who are God-forsaken and abandoned. Jesus calls us time after time away from a life of self-promotion and onto the path of service and self-sacrifice. It doesn't make sense. If you want to get ahead, it's foolishness. And yet through Christ and Christ crucified, God deals with our sin. He enters into our suffering. He identifies with us even to the point of death. And if we are not humbled by that, moved by that, if we won't repent of our pride, then we will never be wise and we'll never know God. It really is that simple. Our faith cannot rest on our achievements, but only on the power of God. And that power, that wisdom is in Christ, and we see it most clearly at the cross. I love the story of Henry Nouwen. Nouwen was a brilliant man, accomplished in every way, a professor at Yale, Notre Dame, and Harvard. But he was profoundly discontent, and he suffered from depression. And so he made a big change in his life. He just threw all that success to one side, and he moved to a large community just north of Toronto, where he lived with a hundred mentally disabled men and women. He was intending to help them, but what he found was that he had nothing to offer them. They were not the least bit impressed with his fancy degrees or his big words. They were weak and totally honest about their weakness. And they forced him to let go of his self-preoccupation, his ability to do things, show things, prove things, fix things. They invited him to let down his guard, to be honest and vulnerable, to learn how to love all over again. And so he received wisdom from them and ultimately from Christ. And now in writes about this experience, he says, Jesus did not say, blessed are those who care for the poor or the weak. He said, blessed are we when we are poor, when we are weak, when we are broken. It is there that God loves us deeply and pulls us into deeper communion with himself. So now in suggests that weakness is the path that leads back to God. And he goes on, he writes, I have become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness. In the sharing of my weakness with others, the real depths of my human brokenness and weakness and sinfulness start to reveal itself to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. 
Are we prepared to share like that in the church? Because we're not saved by getting enough wisdom or power or righteousness. This passage makes that clear. Christ has all of those things in perfection, and we simply receive him, and we get them all in him. So my goal in preaching is not to fill your heads with enough knowledge that you will be acceptable to God, or to give you enough practical wisdom that you have no more problems in your life. My goal is for you to see the beauty and the sufficiency of Christ in all of those things and to learn to trust and love him more. It's not sophisticated. It's foolish. It's pretty simple. Christ did it all. Trust him. Here's the question. Are we going to live mainly for ourselves once we have received Jesus, once we have heard that wisdom, or for our own group of people, our own family, our own friends and tribe, or are we prepared to follow Christ into that self-sacrifice? Last week, we talked about how God wants us to lead extraordinary lives, but that only happens in the everyday decisions we have to make. Paul writes that some demand miraculous signs and mountaintop experiences. Others look for elite expertise, wisdom, and power. But we preach Christ crucified. And we are called to reflect his extraordinary humility. That might be the central virtue for a Christian each and every day as we go about our lives. Not many of us are eloquent like the Corinthian Christians long for. Not many of us can make speeches like Nelson Mandela or whoever the person is in your life that you admire and wish you had that ability. But the truth is that speeches and human knowledge never really change the world or even individual hearts and minds. Only God can do that. And God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose you and me. He doesn't want us to boast in our own abilities. He asks us not to pursue our own self-interest most of all. No, he wants to bring all of us together in Christ. He wants to heal the divisions in our families, in our church, and in our wider community. He wants us to put our trust in the Lord who has become for us our wisdom and our hope for salvation. Thanks be to God, in Jesus Christ.